Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Plunging EU applications send UK architect numbers into a tailspin, controversial new plans for former site of UK's largest women's prison, the Conservatives' unhealthy financial reliance on property developers, winners announced in competition for historic Highgate Cemetery upgrade, and defacement of Rashford mural reignites the debate around England's relationship with racism. My name is Zoe Cave, I'm Head of Projects at Open City, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. My special guest this week is Eddie Blake. Eddie is an architect, academic and lifelong Londoner. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Thanks for having me. Our first story has been reported in the AJ and covers the reported recent plunge in architect numbers. For the first time in a decade, the number of registered architects in the UK has dropped, with half the number of applications from EU citizens in 2020. The ARB, Architects Registration Board, annual report revealed the total number of people who joined the register last year fell by a fifth. Over the past year, they have received just 477 applications via the so-called EU route, compared to 961 in 2019, a figure which itself appears dwarfed by the 1,200 plus applications received in 2016. This significant 50% drop, attributed to the dominating effects of the global pandemic and continued fallout from the Brexit referendum, is the largest so far by a long way. The report also revealed that diversity in the profession remains shockingly low, with just 1% of respondents identifying as black, a percentage which has not changed since previous years. It should also be noted that only a third of people disclose their ethnicity as part of the survey, meaning the real value could be higher or, in fact, lower. Similarly, an equal representation of gender in the industry remains elusive, as just under a third of registered architects identify as women. Terry Okoru, architect member of the ARB board, said, We have a long way to go before the architecture profession can be considered representative. So, Eddie, practices in London and the UK have historically enjoyed a rich intake of European architects. Yet, this most recent report from the ARB shows a dramatic decline in EU applicants. How do you think this is going to affect the UK industry in the coming years? Are UK practice going to struggle to draw in European talent now? Well, I think the uh, headline figures belie a complex landscape under the surface. In my experience, uh, having worked in practice for about 10 years in London, um, I've worked with literally hundreds of uh, Europeans, uh, most often uh, Southern Europeans, Iberians, Italians, Greeks, um, who came over, especially after the 2008 Great Recession. And they have undoubtedly enriched London architecture culture. 
and their, their departure will be a great loss. Um, although the numbers don't suggest that they're leaving en masse, it's a kind of dip rather than a sharp fall. But we should also remember that it's not just uh, a fluid labour market that has enriched London uh, architecture culture. We have world-class schools, the RCA, the AA, the Bartlett, Westminster, CAS, you know, the list goes on, that attract people from across the world and are great places to teach and great places to learn. But also these big practices and kind of medium-sized practices from AHMM through Rogers, Chidfield, Zaha, to small practices like MAF and 6A really depend on this, on this labour market of incredibly talented people. And so, it, yeah, so it's, it's not just about numbers, it's about these individual talented people who have suffused our culture with, uh, with new ideas um, and work. So yes, it will be a massive loss. I think what's really worrying though is that this comes on the back of other problems within the industry. So obviously um, Brexit and the pandemic have ripple effects. Um, and one of the really underreported aspects of this is a serious problem of shortages of basic materials. So there's been rationing of cement and timber. Um, I've been on site recently and it's caused foremen no end of troubles just being able to source basic stuff like T C24 timber. Um, planning, there's a backlog. People in, in the industry have actually responded really well to working from home, but um, there's, there's some wrinkles in that, you know. So I think we're in for a, a rough ride. I think you were saying about kind of other factors at play, which, which leads on to the idea of this, of of the report exposing how low diversity, both in terms of ethnicity and gender, remains in the industry. Um, from your position, why do you think we're still seeing this? So just to kind of like shoehorn in a, a stat here, the 2018 LSE Millennium Cohort Survey showed that when 6,000 young people were asked what they wanted to be when they grew up, it was young black Caribbean women who picked architecture. Similarly, when we look at university cohorts, we see much greater diversity than we do in the industry. So diversity, of course, is not simply an issue related to race. Um, so, for instance, in the UK, uh, Polish is the second most spoken language, yet white non-British people are left out of discussions relating to diversity. Do you think that there are other ways that we should be talking about diversity within architecture? Yes, I think that's a very complex question. Um, I would tend towards trying to discuss it through the prism of class. And I think this is um, you know, the most clarifying framework to understand the problem. And when I have taught working class students, um, undergraduate working class students, the, the most obvious thing that I notice, which differentiates them from other students, from you know, uh, kind of international wealthy class who, who, who often inhabit the London schools, is a sense of confidence or a sense of what uh, Bourdieu would class as habitus. Just the right to be in the room, the right to ask that question. Um, and I think that is a massive hurdle, but it's really hard to pin down how to correct for that. And I often think that by the time a student has got to applying and getting into a part one course, they've already got over a lot of those hurdles. But this thing is, is um, persistent. This, this habitus is persistent. The, the other thing I'd say on the subject is while the profession uh, can do things to challenge these, uh, these poor conditions, uh, this, this imbalance, this inequality, actually it's a a massive societal problem and across the arts but also across all sorts of industries we see this problem of a, um, a kind of widening gap between uh, upper middle class access to money and privilege and the rest. 
You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the programme we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as 9 99 a month and Adobe will donate to Open City for everyone who signs up. Our second story was covered in the AJ and Housing Today. It's all to do with AHMM's revealed plan for nearly 1,000 new homes on the site of Holloway's former women's prison. Alfred Hall Monaghan Morris and developer Peabody plan to build a public park and women's centre alongside the new homes, 60% of which will be affordable housing, including hundreds of socially rented homes for families and the elderly. Designed by Exterior Architecture, walking, cycling and outdoor activities will be promoted by the landscaping as well as it being a car-free site. Holloway Prison, which once stood where this new development is proposed, was the largest women's detention centre in Western Europe, detaining up to 500 people at any one time. First built in 1851, originally as a mixed-sex prison, and then rebuilt in 1968 and 1983, a number of notable people were imprisoned there, including many eminent suffragettes such as Emmeline Pankhurst, the Moors murderer Myra Hindley, and in the original 1852-era prison, the Irish writer Oscar Wilde. Peabody bought the four-hectare site from the Ministry of Justice in 2019 for £80 million, using £42 million lent by the Greater London Authority. Plans for the site have long been controversial, with local campaigners calling for a landmark standalone place marking the jail's legacy and expressing concerns that the proposed women's building risks being hidden away and not central enough to the development. Architect Sarah Wigglesworth commented on being very disappointed in the proposed designs, saying, quote, in the end, money talks and the community is not really listened to. I feel it's all the wrong way around. These latest plans have been unveiled for the final round of public consultation before planning application is submitted in November. So, Eddie, what do you think of these plans? The Mayor of London has said a significant proportion of the homes will be genuinely affordable and the plans Women's Centre operated with Islington Council will offer support services in acknowledgement of the site's history. However, could these things be simply a tokenistic gesture, which simply brush an uncomfortable history and persisting issue under the rug? In principle, I would suggest that good housing is a necessary but not sufficient precondition to keeping people out of prison. And I think that, as a standalone issue, makes this project commendable. Um, Building a thousand new homes in a central, uh, well-connected location is a good thing for London. The complexity comes in about the relationship between the site's previous use and its future use. Um, and as an architect who's interested in history and you know uh, the way that uh, culture deals with our discipline, um, I suggest there does have to be a connection between what the site used to be and what the site will be in the future. I'm not particularly persuaded by Sarah Wigglesworth's her argument that it should be a female-led architecture team. Um, I'd certainly suggest that someone like Muff would be 
perfect for the job of designing this public realm, but not because um, it's led by women, but because they are incredibly nuanced and clever architects. And that's what, that's what would make them respond well to this complex historical uh, context. The, the, the strange thing is it's not something to be celebrated. You know, I don't, I don't want um, a part of North London that I know and love to be celebrating Myra Hindley. You know, that's, that's not what um, architecture should do. I'm not even sure if architecture can really do that. Um, lastly, I think I would say that the best way to support women in architecture is by providing basic good housing. Uh, beyond a women's centre. I'm not saying a women's centre is a bad idea, perhaps it is a tokenistic idea, um, but actually I think it's a sideshow. And I think making sure this housing is genuinely affordable is the key issue. So the prison site sale for Peabody falls under a broader plan by the government to sell off valuable central London sites to developers. Uh, in their place, we're seeing the construction of super prisons, such as HMP Five Wells in Northamptonshire, due to be completed next year, um, which will hold 1,680 inmates at full capacity. The UK is the most incarcerated country in Western Europe, and inmate deaths are on the rise with a 20% increase reported in 2019. Um, what does this say about the criminal justice system? And how can architecture respond or acknowledge if there is a relationship to the to these sorts of trends that we're seeing or like these perpetuating social issues in principle i'd argue that it's obvious that housing is a or poor housing is a key contributor to uh, prison overcrowding and i think as a starting point uh, where architects can um, insert themselves in this problem that would be the place um you know there's a long history of architects arguing, you know, post-68 abolitionist uh, positions about arguing that we shouldn't involve ourselves in designing or building prisons. And I think that's a kind of side issue. We're not going to solve the problem uh, without fixing some deeper societal problems. Our next story appeared in The Guardian and relates to a report by a leading anti-corruption group, Transparency International, who looked into financial support offered by the construction industry to the Conservatives. A fifth of donations to Boris Johnson's party come from the residential property sector, research finds. Transparency International said this posed, quote, a real risk of aggregative corruption, despite the group not being able to conclusively prove that government decisions were actually shaped by this flow of money. Lack of information on lobbying by construction and housing groups was also highlighted as a serious concern by the report, which noted the level of information provided falls lamentably short of the mark. Private renters, making up almost a fifth of all households in the UK, had a notable absence of representation when it came to decision-making in Parliament, in comparison to property developers, making it far less likely that bold solutions would be made to tackle the housing crisis. The Conservatives received over £60 million in donations between 2010 and 2020, and across all parties, more than 80% of donations made by property-related donors went to the Tories. The report also cited a lack of institutional knowledge, commenting across the past 20 years there have been 10 different community secretaries and 18 housing ministers, a rapid turnover which added to the undue influence exerted by the sector. So Eddie, does this come as a surprise to hear the Conservative Party are in bed with housing developers? No, I'm not surprised in any way whatsoever. It's obvious that um, the class interests of developers and the Tory party align perfectly. 
I think it's um, not surprising that um, since it's so um, lucrative to be a developer that this um, this group of people would invest in uh, political allies. I should say though that donating to a political party doesn't necessarily equal corruption. The problem is that the the Tory party have so many unanswered questions and the, the case study that I'd like to raise in this respect is the uh, West Ferry decision where Robert Jenrick acting as Secretary of State called in the Tower Hamlet's decision and two weeks later after he had a conversation with Richard Desmond, um, Desmond donated £12,000 which saved him an estimated £30 million in taxes, which would have gone to the local authority. And that's an incredibly cheap deal. Um, the worst thing about this, apart from the potential corruption, is that there was no transparency. And when things are done undercover in the darkness, they are liable to become corrupt. And without transparency, we are at a massive risk, as Transparency International uh, suggests, of having an aggressive, uh, corrupt regime. Um, this issue also touches on another great blight of our age, which is the cladding scandal. And we have to ask, um, in, in light of this report, in whose interests are these rules being set? The laws, the guidelines, the planning decisions, for whom are they being made? Mm. £60 million sounds like a lot of money, um, and it certainly is to a political party, and for you, the example that you gave, whether that's taxes to a local authority as well. Um, however, the property and construction industries are titans of the UK economy, um, and so, without us being too leading, is this a cheap deal for developers, and is there anything that you can expand on that? It's an incredibly cheap deal for developers, and I think that's, that's one of the... Uh, confusing things about the Tory party and it leads me to conclude that actually it's not just for the money um it's actually because the class interests align there have been reports like this for for a long time this is not a new issue i do think we're in a, an especially bad place in terms of transparency there's obviously been a lot of um pretty bad stories coming about procurement over the past 18 months under the cover of uh, kind of expediency for the pandemic, lots of people have essentially been grifting. I think as a society, we have to reject it. I don't know how, unless there's political will, I don't know how you set the, the rules. It's, it's, it's a wider problem. Corruption um, infiltrates people's minds and it, it, it changes the way they operate in the world. And it's, um, it's more complex than having robust rules. You have to have a, uh, a sense of transparency and public duty. Our penultimate story this week is all to do with the Highgate Cemetery upgrade, which has been covered in The Guardian and The AJ. Hopkins has won an international competition to restore and upgrade the historic cemetery, beating rival bids by selling prize winner Caruso St John, as well as MICA architects Dow Jones, Manola and White and Purcell. The competition saw a team to preserve and enhance historic structures across the Grade 1 registered 15 hectare site, which is the resting place of Karl Marx, artists Lucian Freud, Christina Rossetti and George Eliot. The project, planned to complete in 2025, will improve facilities for staff and visitors at the Landmark Cemetery and a separate competition, won by Gustafsson, Porter and Bowman, will re-landscape the 15 hectare site. 
The firm's winning landscape proposal drew inspiration from an 1839 watercolour of clear views across London when the cemetery was first opened, and involves felling hundreds of spindly young trees in order to open up vistas looking across the city. Hopkins principal Simon Fraser said, This project is about learning from the rich symbolism and meaning of the past whilst being sensitive to the present. So, Eddie, Highgate Cemetery is a beautiful, much-loved and culturally significant green space in London. Have you had a chance to look at the the plans proposed by Hopkins and Gustafsson, Porter and Bowman? And do you think they will be able to preserve the character of the site whilst also bringing it up to date? I think Hopkins are a great practice, obviously a very capable pair of hands, but I think they are a bad fit for this project. I think in in their spiel they talk about uh, celebrating rich symbolism, um, but I don't see in the practice history any evidence of them being able to handle that kind of complex architectural issue. Ian Dungarvel, who is the CEO, is an absolute visionary of a very intelligent and uh, kind of brilliant uh, pair of hands to be at the, at the head of this uh, complex organisation. And his understanding, I think, is very sensitive in the changing nature of death and mourning his ambition to improve accessibility both in a um, kind of practical physical sense but also in a cultural social sense I think is really admirable but as I said I think a lot of people won't see Hopkins as the best choice Um, especially having beaten practices like Crusoe St John and Dow Jones there is there is a lot of technical problems to deal with on this site Essentially, it's a ramps issue. You know, it's a, it's a very uh, complex, steep site with um, lots of issues to do with roots and subsidence. But the the really complex stuff is to do with stakeholders, um, some of whom uh, their voices can't be heard. <laughs> they are six foot under, um, but a lot of whom have a relationship to the site which is not um, proprietary. You know, they don't own anything, but they have a kind of moral ownership both local people but internationally you know uh, people turn up for Karl Marx's birthday once a year um, from across um, kind of international communist groups people visit the graves of the artists and the singers and it's their sense of ownership which I think has to be dealt with in a very sensitive way what I have seen of Hopkins plans is a geometrically interesting deal, um, way of dealing with the courtyard, the cobble courtyard. But it's my understanding that, that courtyard was laid by the friends of Highgate Cemetery um, at the nadir of the cemetery when in the 70s and 80s, Camden Council failed to um, maintain the property because of cuts. And essentially it became a, a grave robbing site. And so this group of locals had laid those uh, cobbles by hand uh, as individuals. So that, that kind of nuanced historical fabric feels like it might well be steamrolled over. Highgate opened in 1839 but was partially abandoned in the 1970s and only just saved from dereliction by Friends of Highgate Cemetery, as you were just saying. Hopefully this revamp will secure the cemetery's future, but what do you think this investment means for green spaces and cultural sites around London more generally? Are they becoming more valued for their non-financial contributions to the city? Yes, in, uh, <laughs> in simple terms. Um, it's not just any old green space. I think it has to sit in its category, uh, its own category. I mean, along with the other, uh, like, seven great Victorian cemeteries around London. I think part of the, the vision of bringing more people in 
um, is is born of a sensitivity to the fact that we need more really high quality green space in London. I mean, it's a very green city, but the quality of that green space isn't always at its highest because of lack of historical investment in maintenance. Um, and because you were involved in a project of your own at uh, Highgate Cemetery a few years ago, could you tell our listeners a bit about the Adolf Luz designed tomb you built there and the story behind it? It was a funny project, um, in some ways self-initiated with the support of the Architecture Foundation, uh, especially Finn Harper. And it was a project which was trying to somehow commemorate mourning and loss rather than any specific loss. It was uh, a ghost of a building. It was an apparition. Um, It was a one-to-one replica of a building that was never built. It was designed in the 20s by Max Loos for the art historian Max Forjak. Um, and in the tumult of uh, 20th, century, 20th century Central Europe, it, uh, the design was lost, but there was a photograph of a model that was retained. And from that photograph of a model, we interpreted a one-to-one replica of how we think the building would have been built. And to, to have played a part in the continuation of that architecture culture, I'm, I'm really pleased with because now when you type in Lowe's Mausoleum, you're as likely to get the Highgate Cemetery version as you were to get this model version or the sketch. And, um, so it's all part of a retelling, uh, re-retelling of a, of a story about um, architecture culture. Our final story this week has been widely reported across the national media and is all to do with the Marcus Rashford mural, which was defaced following the Euros final on Sunday. The artwork in Manchester was defaced with graffiti shortly after England lost in the penalty shootout, and police say that they are investigating the racially motivated damage. In defiance of the racist abuse, local residents covered over the graffiti, adorning the wall with messages of support for Rashford. Now, street artist Axie P19 has repainted the damaged sections of the mural. Um, Eddie, before England's defeat on Sunday, some were citing the Euros as proof that racism in Britain was a thing of the past. However, the defacement of the mural and the shocking abuse directed towards Rashford, Saka and Sancho on social media has proven otherwise. What can be learnt from the events following the the penalty shootout? I think... There is a positive story, actually, uh, that comes out of this, though. When you see the reaction of um, hundreds of Mancunians who turn up and try and replace, in a a very granular, uh, bottom-up, grassroots way, they replace the hate with um, affirmations of support. And in a way, it's an interesting manifestation of an online culture. You know, this this wall is a, a clear expression of the type of conflict that goes on online. And actually there's a interesting to and fro. So now you see that mural with the defacement and then defacement covered over with literally hundreds of thousands of likes on the internet. So this is in some ways a um, an interesting way that architecture plays this role, but not always by being there, by becoming an image of architecture that's then consumed in a different way. <clears throat> on the internet but that that reaction is uh it's reminiscent of like the flowers that uh, were placed at the um uh, kensington palace uh, after diana died it's that kind of very heartfelt vernacular response a kind of design culture that is not coming from you know podcasts like this or whatever it's just this an expression of how people feel it all happened so quickly as well the defacement happened within hours and then the response happened within 24 hours 
all of which makes me think about the, the much longer history of, uh, of murals being an expression of uh, kind of popular will from the East London Hackney Peace Carnival mural or the Cable Street one, which was uh, painted in the 80s, celebrating the resistance um, to the fascists marching down Cable Street in the 30s. Um, and then a slightly less uh, positive history of um, murals in Northern Ireland, but nevertheless being uh, a vernacular expression through a design medium in the public realm of a public will. Um, so all of which just points to the importance of, of architecture in, in the wider discourse, in the political and social discourse. To follow on from that, I think the reason why this type of mural is important is not just because of scale, but it's because it's in an everyday setting. It becomes part of the backdrop for everyone's normal, everyday lives. Um, and that's its potency, um, that it's not in a book, it's not um, delivered, mediated through a screen, it's just there, part of the, your walk to the shops. So we've talked quite a bit about public art on the podcast, for example, the Cable Street mural and the more recent COVID memorial wall opposite the Houses of Parliament. So, yeah, big question. But what role for you, Eddie, does does public art play in society today? Um, And particularly with statues, memorials, murals that are quite often flashpoints between the left and right. um, Can they do they serve an important purpose in demonstrating tensions? There's never been a better time to be into public art. It is it's the most potent cultural phenomenon I can think of um, in the past 18 months. Um, it's really become a, um, a lightning rod for so many issues. So obviously, yes, I think uh, public art plays a massive role, um, both to uh, reflect society back to itself, but also potentially point to a way forward or point to something deep within uh, the human condition. I recently wrote an article for The Guardian uh, about how we might remember uh, COVID. Um, and one, one of the conclusions is it, it's gonna be contentious. This is, this is going to be uh, a fight because so many people have a, a different opinion on that stuff. And I uh, contrasted that with, with uh, Luchin's grand project of memorialization after the First World War and how, although it was contentious, there was uh, pushback by um, the established church and various religious groups. Um, actually, it was an incredibly unifying project. And I think there is potential for architecture to play this role again. Um, architecture can talk about <clears throat> eternity. Architecture can talk about really intangible things, um, expressing the inexpressible through the physical. It's, it's an amazing capacity that this discipline has. Eddie, thank you so much for coming on The London today. Where can our listeners find out more about your work and follow what you're up to? Well, in practice, um, I have a long association with Studio Weave and Sam Jacob, so check them out there. Um, I write widely about architecture and culture for The Guardian, for Vice, for Architecture Review, um, and you can see me on Twitter at, at Eddie Blake now. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. Thank you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 